Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that uh, we're all in fellowship, ready to focus and study on the Word, study the Word, and then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have so many blessings from you that you have provided so much for us and that you have given us everything related to our spiritual life. You've given us your word and you have given us the God, the Holy Spirit, to indwell us and to fill us and to help us to understand your word and to apply it. And we pray that we might not take these things lightly, that we might not take for granted all that we have been given uh, by virtue of, of uh, your grace. And we pray that as we study these things this evening that we would be challenged uh, with the doctrinal principles that are here and that we might be uh, uh, motivated and encouraged to press on in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Genesis 49 down to verse 22. Genesis 49:22, And in this section we're dealing with uh, future trends for the tribe of Joseph in Genesis 49:22 down through 26 covers the prophecy from Jacob on the tribe of Joseph. Now remember that Joseph is actually given a double portion blessing as the he receives the firstborn blessing, and so there's no tribe of Joseph per se. That blessing goes to his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Let's just read through these five verses to get an overview of what Jacob says. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, hated him. But his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate 
from his brothers. I want you to notice, just by way of observation, that at the end of this section, there is a reminder of what uh, what Joseph went through in the <clears throat> hostility from his brothers and the beginning of the verse, I mean, of the prophecy back in verse 22, also uh, is a reminder of what has gone on in the past. It's not primarily a prophecy here as much as we have uh, three verses that focus on Joseph's past and the way God has blessed him, the way God has prospered him in the past, so that there is confidence that this will continue in into the future. So let's just review a couple of things about Joseph and about his, his birth. First of all, Joseph is the firstborn son to Jacob and Rachel. Jacob was to marry Rachel at first, but then her father Laban pulled a switch on uh, Jacob and put the veil on Leah instead. And when Jacob woke up the next morning, he had actually married Leah instead of Rachel. And he had to work another seven years for Rachel. Le- Leah could, was, was very um, prolific and had four sons right off the bat. And then, uh, <clears throat> that, but Rachel was barren. And then Rachel put up her handmaiden Bilhah and then Leah put up her handmaiden Zilpah. More sons were born, but still Rachel was barren. So it wasn't for many years before God finally responded to Rachel's uh, prayers. She was uh, <coughs> the almost the last. Joseph was almost the last, the next to last to be born. Rachel is the third of the three wives of the patriarchs who was barren. Abraham was married to Sarah, and Sarah was barren. They had a son, Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, and Rebekah was barren. And then finally God opened her womb, and and she had twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob married uh, Rachel. Rachel was barren. Do you think that God had a plan, that there was a purpose here, that these women their barrenness wasn't a result of the divine discipline, but that God was demonstrating that the birth, the physical birth of the nation was supernatural. God was demonstrating in a physical way that he is the one who brings life where there is death. He is the one who is able to bring spiritual life where there is a spiritual death. So the point of their barrenness was to show that God had a specific plan for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that God had a future destiny for them. Of course, we know that Rachel tried to resolve the problem through the same sort of uh, human viewpoint technique that uh, her uh, grandmother-in-law, Sarah, had tried with Hagar and uh, that did not have the same disastrous consequences as with Hagar, but she reached a point of desperation and how often that happens in people's lives where they get tired of waiting on the Lord, they get impatient. Now, of course, that didn't happen to anybody here, but uh, they get impatient and then they start trying every technique they can to try to resolve the problem. And sometimes God just wants you to be in a particular set of horrendous circumstances 
for a long period of time. And you don't know why, and I don't know why. Job did not know why. Job never had access to the information that we have access to in Job 1 and 2. He never knew about Satan going before God. He never knew what the rationale was in heaven. He didn't find that out until, if he wrote the book, until the end of the whole episode and God had restored everything. See, we, we come at life so often with these horrible assumptions, just like Job's three friends, that if we're going to go through suffering, that, that God must uh, make that clear to us right off the bat what that, what that purpose might be. And we often say, well, why in the world would God want uh, this to happen to, to me? Why would I go through these kinds of things? And many of us who've been around the Christian life for a while have pretty much resolved why God lets things like that happen in a number of areas. But see, God is going to hit you and me right at those soft spots where we don't expect it and we haven't worked it through in our own soul yet because that's where the test is. He knows just where that weak button is that some situation, some test, some crisis is going to happen in your life and you're going to, first thing that you're going to think is, why did God let that happen to me? And then you're going to think, why did I say that? And that's why, is because we, we get into these, these traps where we think we made, we have it made spiritually and we really haven't. Well, Rachel tried her attempt just as others had before her and she cries out in desperation. For a child in Genesis 30, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, and this is after Leah had had four children, Zilpah had had two, Bilhah had had two, Leah had had two more, uh, probably three more with uh, Dinah, and now Rachel is just desperate for children. She cries to Jacob, Give me children or else I will die. And God hears her prayers at this point and adds, Blessing to her. In Genesis 30, 22, we're told, Then God remembered Rachel. This is an anthropopathism. An anthropopathism is a figure of speech where certain human emotions are attributed to God uh, that he doesn't actually possess in order to teach, communicate uh, his plans his, and his policies in a way that we can understand. And anthropomorphism is a little easier for folks to understand. That's when we attribute to God human form, a nose, ears, eyes, the finger of God, that he doesn't actually possess those things. We know he doesn't possess those things, but they are used in a figurative way to communicate to us his plans, his purposes, and his policies. And the same thing happens with these emotions. God didn't remember her because God didn't forget her. Don't take it literally. God didn't forget all about, oh yeah, wait a minute, Rachel. Now sometimes when when uh, we go through the test for a while, we're wondering, we're like, okay God, wake up. What happened? You got so busy watching out for everybody in Iraq that you forgot about me? Uh, and to us it seems like God has forgotten us because the test has gone on much longer than we thought was necessary. But somehow, I guess God knows better in his omniscience. So God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. He had always intended to do that. It's just that he intended to do it on his time schedule and not on Rachel's time schedule. And she conceived and bore a son, 
and said, God has taken away my reproach. It's very difficult for us to understand what a uh, social uh, pariah she was because she had not been able to fulfill her godly designed role to have children, to have a son, to carry on the family name, and that she was reproached not just uh, by herself but from others. They looked down upon her as if something was wrong. People would ascribe to her some sin as if she, the reason she was barren was because of her, uh, her carnality and her depravity. So she says, God has taken away my reproach, and she names this son Joseph, Yasef in the Hebrew, and she says, the Lord, ha- the Lord shall add to me another son, and it's that verb add, to add to, to gather, uh, to increase, that is the basis for Joseph's name. The Hebrew verb is Yasaf, which means to increase, to do again, or to continue. And so she gives him a name so that when uh, they would say his name, it would be a reminder of what God had done. Now, there's an important thread that I'm weaving through this lesson, and that is the importance of memory. We live in a world today, in a culture today, where history is meaningless. I am convinced that the average uh, 11th grader in uh, coming up through a secular state-sponsored education today doesn't know anything of history beyond what he had for breakfast this morning, has no clue about what happened in 1776 or 1492 or any other major event in history, probably never heard of Alexander the Great, never heard of uh, the... Uh, ancient ancient Greeks or Persians or Babylonians, they're, they're just ignorant. And if you're, it's, a, it's an old saying and it's an old concept that you're doomed to repeat history if you don't pay attention to history. And that's exactly what happens from generation to generation. Once we quit learning the lessons of history, then we're doomed to repeat those same lessons. But we live in a very sophisticated very educated, very avant-garde society today, and we know better. We don't need to know all that historical stuff because we're so much better. We won't make those same mistakes again. But history, not just history in the broad scale, history of cultures, history of civilizations, but history of people, history of your personal life is important. What God has done in your life is important. To think about And to take the time away from your busy schedule just to reflect on different things that God has done in your life, ways God has answered prayer, where you can go back and you can you can have a benchmark on what God has done here or here or here, and think about those things so that when we go through those uh, down times and we wonder if God's really listening to our prayers, we can think back on different times when we had evidence that God answered our prayer and God was more uh, directly involved in our life, as it were, than, than today. God has always emphasized this importance of history, and that's what Jacob is doing as he opens up this particular prophecy. The first point I mentioned focuses on Joseph's birth. The second point is a reminder from Jacob of how God had already blessed Joseph. Verse 22, he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, 
a fruitful bough by a well, his branches run over the wall. See, it's, it's important to remember God's past dealings with you as an individual and, and with groups. When the Jews were crossing the Jordan into the promised land, what was the first thing God had them do? He had them take 12 stones. And trust me, they didn't have to look far for those stones. If you've ever been there, they're just lying there on the ground. But they had to pick up 12 stones. They were big stones. They weren't just little bitty round stones. They were big big stones, bigger than a bowling ball, and piled up these 12 stones in a rock cairn for a purpose. So that when you come here with your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren and they say, uh, Papa, what's, what's that pile of rocks doing over there? Then that will be an occasion for the father, the grandfather, the great-grandfather to tell the story once again to the next generation of how God brought the Jews into the land, how their presence in the land was a result of years of faithfulness on the part of God, how God had originally made the promise to Abraham, how he reiterated it to Isaac, how he restated it to Jacob, and and God had told uh, Abraham that they would be out of the land for 400 years, and it would be 400 years before he would bring them back. And then he brought them back, and they brought back the bones of Joseph, and they brought them back uh, to the land, and how they crossed the Jordan into the land, how they conquered the Canaanites, that this land was the land that God God had given them. History is important because history is the outworking of the plan of God. And I've heard it said by many people, it's not my experience because of my, my fortune of growing up in a church that taught the scripture and taught history, and I always had a love for history, but those who grew up without that in their background who didn't have any uh, frame of reference for biblical truth or history, once they start studying the Scripture, all of a sudden history takes on a whole new meaning and a whole new significance. It's not just a bunch of uh, unrelated, uncollected facts that just revolve around a bunch of dates that some teacher wants you to understand because most teachers don't have any thread to organize all the all this unrelated material of history. They don't understand that that there's order and purpose and significance to history. And so they don't look at history as a story showing the faithfulness of God, the outworking of his plan and his purposes, where you can go through history and see the uh, uh, (coughs) exhibition of the power of God as he has delivered people down through the ages and as he has has blessed them, and that's what Jacob is doing here. He's saying, Joseph's a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. Now there is a um, there's a bit of a a play on words here in the first phrase. It says Joseph is a is a fruitful bough, and the verb there is para which is the Hebrew verb, which means to be fruitful. This is the basis for Joseph naming his son Ephraim. The root core uh, syllable in Ephraim comes from para. And in Genesis 41.52, we read the name of the second son he called Ephraim. Why? For God has caused me to be fruitful 
in the land of my affliction. So when Jacob reminds Joseph of his blessing, he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, and it's a, it's a play on words, it's a pun, to bring to his mind that his fruitfulness is coming out through his sons, through Manasseh and Ephraim, and they will be the ones receiving the uh, double blessing of, of Joseph. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough. And there it has the idea of a, of a very strong plant. And as we look at this, it is a vibrant plant, a, an active, a thriving plant. And it's a fruitful bough by a well. Now, when you and I think of a well, we think of a hole in the ground with a wall around the well and a bucket be- dropping down the well. That's not the idea here in the Hebrew. The Hebrew has the idea more of a spring, an, an iron, uh, iron, Actually, I think is how they say it. It's a, it's a, it's an active spring where you have water bubbling out of the ground and flowing down the side of the mountain. I remember when I was, um, was probably 14 or 15 years old, went on a couple of canoe trips up in the upper Colorado River. And back in those days, you went up above Lake Buchanan, up above Marble Falls. That was just ranch country, and it was quite an adventure for a 14 or 15-year-old camping out on the river for a week. And we'd pull over during the day at various places, and there would be these springs where the water's just flowing right out of the rock, and we would just fill up our canteens. We didn't have to boil the water or put any kind of uh, purification tablets or anything in there, and it just tasted great. Well, that's the idea here. It's the ground. The, the water's just bubbling up out of the ground, and keeping the uh, plant, the tree, well watered so it grows very quickly, it's very active, and it produces a lot of fruit. And that's the way Joseph was. He grew spiritually very, very quickly as a young man. He demonstrated a lot of maturity as he grew, and God blessed him in many ways, blessed him despite the adversity. And we'll get to the adversity in the next verse But God blessed him in the house of Potiphar. God blessed him when he was in prison. He was elevated uh, over all of the other prisoners. God blessed him in bringing him out of prison and elevating him to the position of the second most powerful person in the land because God had a plan for his life. And Jacob is focusing on the fact, think back on these benchmarks in your life of how God took care of you, how God uh, answered Uh, your prayers, how God responded when you claimed promises. Remember those things. Write them down so you don't forget them. So he is emphasizing the past blessing of God in uh, Joseph's life, that he was blessed as a slave, blessed while in prison, uh, blessed when he came to Pharaoh. Now, many people believe that Joseph was a type of Christ. Now, in the doctrine of typology, we always have to be careful. I think we've gone from one extreme to the other extreme in the last 50 or 60 years. If any of you ever read Arthur Pink's commentary, Gleanings in Genesis, then that is an example of hyper-typology. Because everything, every event, every word, every noun is a picture of something in the work of Christ. And that's that's going too far in one direction because the Bible doesn't use 
the typology that way. The New Testament never uses the Old Testament that way. But the New Testament makes it very clear from passages like 1 Corinthians 10.3 that these people, these events that occurred in the Old Testament happened as an example to you, Paul says. That word translated example there is the Greek word tupas. That's where we get our English word type. It's an antiquated word today when people... Uh, here you talk about a type of Christ, they think that's all one word, and they're trying to scratch their head trying to figure out what that what that means. And if you're from Texas, it, you really do run it together, and it's a T-Y-P-A-C-H-R-I-S-T. It's a type of Christ, and that's what I heard for years before I finally figured out it was a type of Christ, and we're talking about three words there. And a type is a shadow image. It is when God is using a person or an event in the Old Testament to picture or portray something about the person or work of Jesus Christ in the future. So, when we come to Christ, I think that there are elements in Joseph's life that do portray something about Jesus, even though the, Old, the, the New Testament doesn't identify Joseph as a type. See, that's the other extremes. People came along and said, okay... On the one hand, we've had people identify every noun in the Old Testament as a type of Christ. Now, we're not going to say that anything's a type unless the New Testament specifically identifies it as such. Well, then you've gone all the way to the other extreme to where typology was almost ignored completely when I went through seminary. So there's a balance in between that there, I don't think the New Testament has to identify something in the Old Testament is a type, because it can be made clear just by usage, just by uh, the things that are said. And I think that's true with Joseph. Let's look at seven ways in which Joseph pictures the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, Joseph was the delight of his father, the same way that Jesus is the beloved son of his father. Matthew 3:17 Joseph was the delight of his father Jacob loved Joseph because Joseph was the son of his beloved Rachel uh, Joseph was the delight of his father Jesus is said by the father on two occasions this is my beloved son Second way in which Joseph uh, pictures the Lord Jesus Christ is that he was rejected by his brothers Genesis 37:4 Jesus, in the same way, is rejected by his brothers. John 1, 11, uh, we're told that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. Uh, Jews who had been prepared for 2,000 years to accept the Messiah, they knew what family he would come from, they knew what town he would be born in, they knew uh, all of the circumstances of his life, what would characterize uh, the Messiah. And when Jesus came they turned their back on him so much so that they ended up arresting him, accusing him of blasphemy, and crucifying him. Third area of of similarity is that Joseph was sold into Egypt. Actually, this is picked up in Matthew chapter 2. Joseph goes down to Egypt. Jesus went down to Egypt. There is a, a comparison made by Matthew that Jesus fulfilled this typology by going down to Egypt. 
Joseph was sold into Egypt, Genesis 37:28. Jesus fled there with his parents uh, as Herod was seeking to kill all of the babies, the male babies from the age of two and under, Matthew 2, 4, 14 through 15. Fourth way in which Joseph mirrors or reflects the Lord Jesus Christ is that Joseph withstood temptation to sin. We're not really told of any sin in Joseph's life. Genesis 39, 7 through 12. Jesus also resisted Satan's temptations in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Fifth way in which Joseph was a shadow image of the Lord Jesus Christ was that he was raised from the death of prison and exalted to the side of Pharaoh, Genesis 41, 14 to 43. Jesus was also raised from the dead, from the actual dead, and exalted to his father's right hand where he was currently seated awaiting the giving of the kingdom, Acts 2, 32 to 33. Joseph was raised from the dead at prison, exalted to the side of Pharaoh. Jesus was raised from the dead, exalted to his father's right hand. Sixth, Joseph mercifully forgave his brothers for causing him to suffer. Genesis 50, 15 to 21, that will be one of the major lessons we'll get to. In Genesis 50, this is one of the primary doctrines in the life of Joseph, is that Joseph gives us this foundation that even when bad things happen, even when people intentionally do horrible things to us, we as believers have a divine viewpoint perspective that God is in control of history and that even though people mean it for evil, God is going to use it for good, connecting that to Romans 8.28. Joseph... uh, mercifully forgave his brothers for causing him to suffer. Jesus prayed that the Father would forgive those responsible for his suffering. Luke twenty three thirty four. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Uh, point number seven, Joseph took a Gentile bride, Genesis forty one forty five. Jesus is calling out Gentiles to be in part of his bride, Colossians 1, 24 to 27. So those are seven parallels where Joseph is a picture, foreshadows certain things in the life of Christ. Okay, as we go through this, the first point was that Joseph was born to Jacob and Rachel. Second, Joseph, uh, Jacob begins his prophecy uh, with a reminder of how God has blessed Joseph. Third, Joseph also passed numerous tests of personal hostility and adversity. Hostility and adversity are just as much a part of God's plan for the believer as good things, as blessing, as health, as prosperity. Because God is teaching us things in those dark times that we may not understand what we're learning or how we're learning it. And it may not become clear to us till much later on. It is sometimes in our darkest moments when life seems its most hopeless and we are most helpless that principles in the Word of God become more real to us and we begin to understand 
the dynamics of different aspects of the Christian life in ways that we never did before as we're just gripping onto the grace of God just to make it through the next hour. So we move from verse 22, which focuses on God's blessing on Joseph, and verse 23, Joseph (coughs) faces various tests. Verse 23, we read, The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. Archers here is a metaphor for those who are at enmity with Joseph, those who are antagonistic to him. Here we have a picture of adversity. Adversity is the outside pressure of the details of life. We live in the devil's world. We live in a cosmic system that is ruled by fallen men. And even though we have been blessed to have lived in a nation where there's the greatest degree of freedom that perhaps any country has ever known, any citizens have ever known, that freedom is gone. Uh, Every night I watch the news and I am convinced that we are living under the tyranny and have been for a long time of uh, our modern politicians that there is no integrity left among just about anybody in Washington. As soon as anybody gets elected, they decide that the primary uh, focus is to make sure they can get reelected and do whatever it is that will uh, make people feel immediately comfortable. And I am convinced that uh, we are going to see things we would never imagine to be true Uh, within the next 10 years. Just imagine, would you have ever thought 20 years ago that the Congress of the United States would consider passing a bill uh, of hate speech where they would make make hate speech a a felony, uh, talking about uh, where pastors who taught the biblical truth about homosexuality as a sin, just like any other sin, would be guilty of a special category of criminal speech. What happened to the First Amendment? We've lost it, folks. You think that that we still have this, but don't kid yourselves. Christians have to take a stand. And it's important for Christians to do that. We live in a world where we've become disenfranchised. Up until the 1960s, uh, actually, you put it in the 1920s to the 1960s, the, the, the Christian base of this culture was lost. The reason you didn't have a moral majority, the reason you didn't have Christian activism as such back in the 19th century, is everybody was a Christian. Everybody was active. You look at what happened in the uh, war between the states, whatever you, you think about the arguments for against slavery and what was happening there, it had, and I, I've argued this for years, that it had a theological foundation based on the shift to uh, more and more of an anthropocentric view of, of Christianity. And uh, w- once you do that, it shifts to more and more to where government is the solution and and not uh, not part of the problem. And that was going on. But, but what motivated, what was energizing, what was going on before the Civil War all came out of Christianity. Everybody was, in one way or another, within the house of Christianity. Some were more biblical, some were less biblical, some were moving towards what became known as uh, 19th century Protestant liberalism. 
But the culture in this country from the 16, early 1600s with the founding of the initial colonies in Virginia and in Massachusetts and other places were deeply and profoundly Christian. People didn't think any other way. In fact, when the Revolutionary War came along, so most churches lost their elders. Seventy-five percent of the elders in the Presbyterian churches in America joined the uh, Continental Army. So much so that the Continental Army of the United States and, and, and the British called the American War for Independence the Presbyterian War because they understood that it was out of a context of Presbyterian theology that motivated the American citizens to fight for their freedom. So you never saw this separation between, between biblical truth and Christians standing up and fighting for freedom and, and politics. What happened in the, between the 20s and the, and the 60s was that the conservative biblical base lost its place in the culture. And when they lost their place in the culture, they lost their place in the denominations. And what happened when they lost their place in the denominations is they lost the money, they lost the property, they lost the schools, and they became literally disenfranchised and marginalized so that the the conservative Bible-believing Christians who had formed the warp and woof of American citizenry for two to three hundred years were now on the fringe and they didn't have any power. They didn't have any schools. They didn't have any money. They lost their organizations. They had all had to leave the major denominations. They had to leave the United Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church, and they formed either independent churches or splinter denominations. And it took them 40 years until the 1970s before they had accrued property and money and power in order to do anything again. And so people come along, they looked at the moral majority and what Falwell was trying to do with the moral majority and looked at that like it was some aberration. Well, we'd never seen anything like it before in American history, and we didn't need to, because everybody thought that way up until the 1920s. And see, now we're, we're so marginalized that you have major writers, political writers and scientists saying, well, maybe there's this regressive gene called a religious gene and this is really a matter of, uh, of mental illness and those who are have this tendency towards fundamentalism are just mentally ill just like just like Muslim fundamentalists see a fundamentalist is a fundamentalist that's how stupid they are that's how religiously ignorant they are and how historically ignorant the media is is that, that a fundamentalist is just somebody who believes in the fundamentals of something. When you invest your money in your 401k, don't you want a fundamentalist for a financial advisor who believes in the fundamentals of, uh, of sound economics? Sure you do. There's nothing wrong with being a fundamentalist. It's what the fundamentals teach. If you're a fundamentalist Muslim, then your fundamental, fundamentals teach you to go kill everybody that doesn't believe the way you believe. 
But if you're a fundamentalist Christian, your belief doesn't tell you that. Your basic belief is that you are to love your enemy. You are to take the gospel to those who hate you. You are to spread the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world to the entire world. So we live in a world today where we are going to come under more and more overt political hostility and perhaps even uh, be accused of criminal activity simply because we believe the Bible is true. Can you believe it? This week, I believe it's going to be next Monday on Memorial Day, the Answers in Genesis ministry is going to open a creationist museum that they have been raising money for and working toward for about six or seven years that I know of. And they're going to open this creationist museum up in northern Kentucky, just south from Cincinnati, just south across the the, the state line. And they are uh, receiving so much flack there are atheist organizations and science organizations that are uh, going up there and picketing the fact that they have opened with private money on private land uh, with private subscriptions. They are opening a creationist museum, and there are these organizations who are saying this is just absolutely horrible. They're just wanting to brainwash people with all these lies, and all kinds of horrible things are being said about them by people who have never even been there to see what's there. Now, how scientific is that? So we live in a world where the vast majority of the political and social elites in this country think that you have ideas that are dangerous, that you are a traitor to their view of freedom because they're socialists, and that you need to basically be removed so that this country can be what it's supposed to be. You're the biggest danger to this country that ever came along just because you're a Bible-believing Christian. And that's going to get worse. Well, Joseph was in that kind of situation where he was attacked by those he loved, his own family, his brothers, And they're pictured here as archers, as enemies who are picked him out specifically as a target and are shooting arrows at him to destroy him. The archers have bitterly grieved him, talking about the fact that it hurt him deeply. when, When people reject us, of course it hurts. That doesn't mean that we're justified in responding and reacting in illegitimate manner, in hatred, in vindictiveness, in bitterness. But the archers bitterly grieved him. They shot at him and they hated him. And we read back in Genesis 37 how his brothers hated him so much they would not even talk to him. But in contrast, verse 24, his bow remained in strength. Despite the fact that he had enemies from his own family, Later, when he was a slave, he was falsely accused of rape. In prison, he gave a solution to the the butcher, and he was forgotten by the one he had helped and encouraged. And aside from these, he had to go through various other aggravations, being in prison, and yet he trusted in God. He did not lose his faith 
and his hope in God. I was reading today in a commentary I have written uh, about 100 or 150 years ago by one of the greatest Hebrew scholars of the uh, early 19th century. He was a distant relative of our president. His name was George Bush. I got picked up a whole bunch of commentaries by him years ago that were reprinted. George Bush writes in his commentary on Genesis that the prophecy here points to Joseph in person, from whose history its fulfillment appears evident. He was aimed and shot at, as it were, by the bitter and reviling words of his brethren, and still more deeply wounded by their cruel treatment. He was sold into Egypt through envy and imprisoned by a lie. His virtue was violently assaulted by his mistress, his innocence wronged by his master, and his patience severely tried by the ingratitude of a fellow prisoner. Yet his bow abode in strength, the text says. The divine favor forsook him not. The idea in that verse is that his bow remained in strength, is that that which he had, his life, remained focused on God, who was the source of his strength, and the source of, of his stability. The only thing that gives you stability and strength in times of adversity is the character of God. How many times do you read through the Psalms, and as the psalmist is going through whatever attack it is, whatever the adversity is, the psalmist starts going through the character of God. And you can think it through with me. You think about the fact that God is sovereign. That means he is in control of every detail in history. Nothing happens in my life outside of his control. He is righteous. That means his plan for my life is righteous and just. He is love. That means that even though I don't understand it, I know that a loving hand is at the helm controlling the circumstances of my life. He is eternal life, which means that in terms of his eternity, he has seen it all, he has, is aware of it all, and there are no surprises. When we come to his omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, we know that in his omniscience there are no surprises. He knew exactly what crisis I would face today. In his omnipotence, he has more power than any person, any event, any political party, any circumstance, any terrorist in all of history. In his omnipresence, he's everywhere present. He knows everything that's going on in human history. In veracity, he speaks the absolute truth when he tells me in his word that he will never leave me or forsake me and that he is never going to change. He is always faithful. And this is what Joseph, uh, what Jacob does in the prophecy, and this is what Joseph did in his life. His bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands. Notice the dual use of the word hands here. His hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Now, does God have hands? No, that's another anthropomorphism. God doesn't have literal hands, but when we read in Scripture the hands of God, it is always a picture of his omnipotence, of his power, of his unlimited strength. And so the first uh, reference to God, and we see several references and allusions and names and titles of God here. Five different names are used in this prophecy in relationship to uh, Joseph's strength. First of all, the hand of the mighty God of Jacob. It's his hand. It's his power. It's, it's, it's 
you have a dual mention here. It's the hands of the mighty God, twice the emphasis on his omnipotence. God is more powerful than any person, any problem, any set of circumstances in our life. Six times in the scripture we have this phrase relating to the God of Jacob. In Psalm 132.2, we read how he swore to Yahweh and vowed to the mighty one of... Uh, where I have that? Here we go. How he swore to the Lord and, he, and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Isaiah 124. Therefore the Lord says, The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Notice... Every time you have this phrase, other than Genesis 49, where you have the mighty one of, of Israel, the mighty one of Jacob. Remember, Israel was his uh, second name that God gave him. Uh, in, the rest of the, uh, in the rest of the Old Testament and the other uh, five uses of this, it always is appositional to the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the mighty one of Jacob. It ties God, by that name Yahweh, to that Abrahamic promise that is the core of Jacob's strength. Isaiah 49.26 I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. When we read this and the name Yahweh, the concept of mighty one of Jacob, it ought to remind us of those two key events in Jacob's life. One occurred as he was leaving the land to go north to Padanaram when he was going to, when he was escaping the wrath of Esau and seeking refuge with his cousins up north. And God appeared to him at Bethel where he's lying down uh, with a stone as his pillow. And then suddenly God appears to him. He has this vision, the original stairway to heaven. And he sees angels coming down and going up. And God appears to him and reiterates the uh, blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And says that he will bring him back to the land. And he will fulfill through Jacob all the promises that he had made to Abraham and also to Isaac. And then in Genesis 32... Uh, 24, that was in Genesis 28, 13 to 22. And then in Genesis 32, 24, he returns to a place called Peniel or Penuel because it was there that he met God face to face. And again, God reiterated to him the promise that he would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant to him. That was on the uh, Jabbok River in the Transjordan area. Then as we go on in Genesis uh, 49, let me go back, 49, God is referred to as the shepherd, the shepherd of Jacob. We look at uh, verse 25, uh, excuse me, 24. The arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, for there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Two phrases that are used there. First, that he is the shepherd, and this imagery of shepherd is first used in the Bible of God in Genesis 48:15. He blessed Joseph. This is just two cha- uh, the chapter before 
when Jacob was blessing Joseph, and he says, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has, well, in the New American Standards translates shepherded, the God who has shepherded me. It's a better translation, not fed me. It wasn't God who fed him. It was shepherded him, led him, protected him. That's the idea in that metaphor of a shepherd. We get the same thing in the New Testament, that a shepherd, a pastor's job is to lead. He, a pa- pastor leads the sheep to where they can be fed, but the pastor also protects the flock from false doctrine, from those who come in who would bring heresy, who would teach falsehood, those who would distract and mislead the congregation. And so the, you see this imagery here in Genesis 48:15, God protecting and leading. Feeding isn't part of the imagery there. And this reminds us of what David says in Psalm 23, 1, that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That is true for every believer, that the Lord is our shepherd. He's the one who leads us. He's the one who guides us. He's the one who provides for us. And the result is when the Lord is our shepherd, we have no wants. There's no need. You know, you get out into the world of secular psychology, and one of the core concepts is a need-driven mentality. And this comes out in Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. You know, this is just human viewpoint garbage. When God is your God, there are no needs. You may think you have them, but when God is your God, there are no needs. He has given you, according to Second Peter uh, 1, 2, and 3, God has blessed us and given us everything related to life and godliness. That word everything didn't drop something. It didn't leave something out. You don't have to wait until 19th century or the 20th century for Freud or uh, Jung or Maslow or uh, anybody else to come along and all of a sudden have new insights. The Word of God and the Word of God alone is sufficient to take care of every issue of our life. That's the point of Psalm 23. God is the one who is our shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. The picture of the nourishment in verse 2, the green pastures, the forage, the still waters, that is what restores the soul. It is the Word of God that restores a person's soul. The reason it is messed up and fragmented is because of carnality. And the only solution to carnality is the Word of God, not psychobabble. Not sitting around in some sort of a uh, self-help group. It is the Word of God and the Word of God alone. And this is, um, this is what was standard fare until Freud came along. And just like uh, Christians fell in love with Darwin and the people who promoted Darwinism the most in the 19th century were pastors. And the people who promoted Freudianism the most were pastors because they had lost faith in the Word of God. But the Word of God claims to be sufficient. And if the Word of God isn't sufficient, and if God isn't sufficient, then you know why, why waste your time going to church? David said in Psalm 23, 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the most extreme form of adversity we can think of where our very life is threatened. Even though I walk through the most extreme forms of adversity and assault, I will fear no evil. 
because I understand the um, I un- understand <coughs> Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? For you were with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, which is the word of God, in the presence of my enemies. That's what, uh, that's what Joseph had, was a complete provision by God in the presence of his enemies. And he, it was God who anointed his head, and because God blessed him, his cup ran over. So as the psalmist concludes, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That relates to that second concept of God as the shepherd. Then he is the stone of Israel. We have the imagery again and again and again in the Psalms that God is our rock. He is our fortress. That's where I built the whole imagery of a soul fortress, that when we take in the Word of God and apply the Word of God, it builds a, an inner fortress of strength in our soul where it becomes edified, built up, so that as we dwell within the uh, foundation, within the walls developed on the basis of that doctrine, we can handle any and every adversity in life. Then, fourth, we have the phrase that he is uh, God of thy father. This reflects the Abrahamic promise of God's faithfulness to Jacob in light of We go back to Genesis 28:13, where God said to him at Bethel, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. And then as we go through verse 25, we read, By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you. And the Hebrew word for Almighty here is the word Shaddai. This is a word that's used, a name for God's used two or three times in Genesis. It's used most frequently in the book of book of Job, 31 times in the book of Job. And it is, indicates God as the almighty God. The Septuagint translates it with the Greek word pantokrator, all-powerful. And again, it emphasizes his omnipotence, his ability to perform whatever he intends to perform, and that he is stronger and mightier than any any problem we face. By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. So the blessing that we have comes from this God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is everywhere present. He is the one who has the ability to truly bless us, it's not blessing because it makes us happy because of our self-absorbed, uh, self-oriented, self-oriented arrogance. It is a blessing because God knows what is best for us and he gives us that which is best for us, even when it is something that may be hard or difficult, even when it might be some form of adversity. Uh, it is a blessing because God knows that it is what will drive us to dependence upon him. And that was a blessing for Joseph to be in prison because of what he learned in terms of trusting God. Jacob goes on to say, Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The imagery there is of a mother nourishing her children. And the idea is that God is the one who continuously nourishes us and provides for us. Verse 26, The blessings of your father 
have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Jacob is talking about how God blessed him. The blessings God ble- with which God blessed me are greater than the blessings of those who preceded me. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph. He's, he's talking about the transfer of the Abrahamic blessings on to the next generation to Joseph and then on to his descendants. On the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. So in this promise this prophecy related to Joseph, he starts off talking all the way through here about how God has blessed him. Over and over again, we have this emphasis on blessing, and it all ties back to the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic blessing, and that this is going to continue through Joseph. Well, we've run out of time. Next time, we'll come back and finish up with the end of the prophecy. Maybe we'll get into the final uh, moments in Jacob's life, his death and burial. I hope so before I head off to, to Israel. And we'll save the last chapter for when I return. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of your faithfulness, your power, your provision for us. We pray that we might not uh, forget it, but might live in your promises that you will never leave us or forsake us. And you are always faithful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.